Greetings and welcome to the Contemplative Light Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Sabom. We've got a great episode today with Chris Woodward going over Tibetan Buddhist practices, and it's just so many gems in what he says uh, to give you for practices. And I wanted to make the announcement that you've probably heard if you listened to the last couple of episodes that I'm now offering spiritual direction and I meet you where you're at. It doesn't have to be Christian mysticism or contemplative Christianity, but it can be. It can be wherever you're at in your spiritual journey. And um, my prices are very flexible, so I know it's a bad economy. So if you're possibly interested in that, email me at thegraveyardcowboy at gmail.com thegraveyardcowboy at gmail.com and I'll also put that below the show in the show notes and I wanted to mention too I have a digital class on emotional release and the Sedona method which I originally made for um, my material that I do on hermetics with Franz Barden and people interested in that as a kind of key to the four elements But really, this is a class that could be used by anybody of any tradition, of any school of thought. It's kind of a psychological exercise that kind of takes you into the spiritual. And so um, I have that, that class offering, and I'll put the link below in the show notes. And otherwise, just uh, enjoy this great episode with Chris and hope everyone's doing great out there. Chris, welcome back to the podcast. Always great to have you. Mm, good to be here, Clint. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, it's nice to be back. Yeah, absolutely. And we were talking a little before the show. You've got a lot of good stuff going in your your life and career as a meditation teacher, and that's that's really great. And um, yeah, man, it's just uh, it's good to have you here and talk about Tibetan Buddhism because. You know, I've been studying Tibetan Buddhism more, and it's such a rich tradition. It's mm-hmm. just like there's there's all these aspects of it. Yeah, the, you're right. It's it's um it's a vast territory, <laughs> and uh, you know the the different schools of Tibetan Buddhism that have different uh, uh, emphasis on different types of teachings and things like that. Of course, we. In the West, we know probably, uh, you know, at the foreground of Tibetan Buddhism in the West is the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which has become a classic uh, here in the West as well. Uh, and it's still very you know, widely studied in Tibet and in, in, in Tibetan Buddhism uh, in other areas like Nepal and India, where Tibetan Buddhism is now uh, really flourishing. So, yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot there to talk about. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But it seems to kind of have, well, at least according to Robert Thurman, incorporated all the aspects of all the different Buddhisms, you know, that are kind of out there and Mm. is, um, yeah. So, so tell us about your own training in Tibetan Buddhism and what, what was involved in that. Sure. Yeah. My, my training in Tibetan Buddhism, I think uh, a Tibetan Lama or Rinpoche might consider uh, somewhat unorthodox. 
uh, I didn't do the, uh, you know, stay in a Tibetan monastery or anything like that. Um, but I studied primarily with a teacher who I consider still to be my primary teacher, uh, senior teacher, Ken McLeod, uh, from the Dzogchen tradition. And his teacher was Kalu Rinpoche, and who is a very well-known uh, um, teacher in Tibet. And so we did the very classic um, Tibetan uh, curriculum. And it, this comes right out of Ken McLeod's book, one of his books called Wake Up to Your Life. And so we, we use that book as a textbook, really. And we systematically went through each chapter in the book. Um, and I would spend, in order to keep up with what Ken was giving me, I'd spend roughly six to eight hours a day meditating. And wow. Wow. It was a very deep, very deep uh, curriculum. And Ken was very good. Well, of course, he we, we didn't start with six to eight hours a day. <laughs> sure, sure. You know, I was coming out. I, I had studied quite intensely in, in Zen when I met Ken. And so I had, had already had quite a deep background, meditation background. I had been studying Zen for about 15 years uh, before I started studying with Ken. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. And... The Jogchen tradition, and I just realized I've been pronouncing it wrong in my mind because it's usually spelled with a D, so I've been uh, saying Jogchen. Uh, <laughs> that's common. Yeah, very common. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell us about that that tradition. Yeah, well, Jogchen uh, is, is quite similar to Zen in that they their primary practice is one of bare attention. And so that's the kind of the practice and it, it falls in Zen. It's also um, many of the mindfulness schools uh, do bare attention. Um, uh, the insight school, which comes from early Buddhism, they also use bare attention practices. So it's certainly not um, exclusive to Zen or Dzogchen. Um, but I found it to be closest to what in the Zen practice is called Shinkantaza, where you, you are invited to simply sit and just to sit. <laughs> but in, in Dzogchen, then, there's uh, more to it. There's actually stages to the practice. And actually, this is the practice that I outlined in my first book, Such Sweet Thunder, where uh, the practitioner, the way I outlined it in the book is starting with the breath. You don't have to start with the breath, but that was seemed to me the best starting point. And that's how my practice was, was going. I, I would start with the breath usually. And then you add more and more features of the present moment to awareness. So bringing awareness first to the breath. And then expanding out from the breath so we don't move from the breath to the body but we include all of the other sensations in the body with the sensations of the breath like that gotcha so it's always this experience of adding more and more and so after we we start with the breath the body then expanding out to include the sounds the aural field including silence uh, and then Generally in Tibetan Buddhism, at least in this practice and many other practices that come from Tibet, uh, the eyes are open. 
And so then the practitioner is invited to include the visual field. So then we're, we're meditating with the experience of the breath, the body, all of the sounds that are present, anything that you can see, all of the colors, the shadows, the light, the space. And then including any feelings or emotions that might be present. And that's where it becomes really, the, the, I think for me anyway, the depth of the practice is when we start including the emotions because we start to realize that everything's changing. You know, when, when, you, when you're meditating with the breath, it's quite easy to notice how the sensations of the breath are changing, right? The abdomen's rising and falling, the rib cage is moving with the breath, the, the temperature is changing at the nose and the back of the throat as you breathe in and breathe out, right? So there's, there's all this impermanence that's happening. And then when we bring awareness to the body, we start to notice how the body is too always changing. The, the physical sensations, although there may be a headache, when we bring awareness to that headache inc and including the other sensations of the breath and the body, we start to notice that even the pain of the headache is shifting. It's kind of bubbling. It's changing. There's all of this granularity underneath the word headache. Right? We tend there to, you go. Yeah. Right? We tend to freeze it into a concept, and that makes it feel permanent. Yes. I, yeah. So I'm glad you said that. That's yeah. a really that's a really good thing, you know. Yeah, that's one of the real profound insights of of this type of um, Dzogchen practice is we start to uh, go to the felt experience of the body rather than the word. The word freezes the body into a concept, but in the meditation practice, we're invited to actually connect with the the actual felt experience of the body. Yeah, yeah. Um, so did you do anything like that would be considered tantric practices or yogic practices in this? Very, training? yeah, I'm not even really sure because the way <laughs> the way Ken teaches, he, he takes like all of the, the, the wisdom of the tradition and really brings it to the Western culture, so to speak. I know that's kind of, probably not pol politically correct to say that term but but essentially that's what's being done is that he's he's taken the the tibetan culture or the the words like tantra or even the words yoga or even mindfulness he doesn't use those words in the book or, or when he teaches so he's really bringing it to to um to the western culture to america north america south america Sure, and sure, and I and, and yeah. I have noticed that there's a kind of um, with Tibetan sinners and Tibetan uh, gurus that are here in the states or I guess in Europe. There's definitely bringing it to the West. So sometimes, you know, sometimes a more intermediate or advanced student might get frustrated because you go to a, yeah. a center and all their teaching is just a simple breathing thing and then a brief talk on peace or something. And then right. you're just like, where, where'd all the juice go? You know, <laughs> where's the juice? Give me the juice guru. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned that. That's one thing that Ken actually mentions in his book, in the foreword of his book, he says, uh, this book is a traditional Tibetan text 
created for the West without dumbing it down. And, oh, good. Yeah. Good. <laughs> yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I reached out to him uh, when, when we first established a student teacher relationship is as that was exactly what I was looking for. You know, I didn't want another breathing practice with another talk on peace because, right? <laughs> because I've been through, I've, you know, I had done that already and that, that kind of thing can be great to, 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 to usher people into a practice. You know, I think those, those types of practices are really great entry points because they're, they're sure. accessible and they, it, it doesn't overwhelm somebody who's just beginning, you know, but absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it also, even if you do become advanced, it's, it seems like it's very good to stay um, consistent with the basic practices at the same time, not, absolutely. not necessarily ever abandon them. No, yeah. no, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and almost all of my practices, when I sit down and practice, I start with the breath and a body scan, you know, start right with the very basics. And then I go from there into a different practice. And I, oh, I fantastic. Yeah. I, I think for me, that's always been the best way to start a meditation. Uh, to really uh, connect to the present moment. You know, the physical sensations of the body, the sounds, the breath, that's always the present moment. And and for me, that's a really helpful way to start a practice. Yeah. So to, to come back to your question, if that's okay, um, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about some of the practices we did do, and then maybe um, uh, maybe it's tantric. I think probably perhaps it is. Um, and, but... Uh, uh, I don't know for sure, so I don't want to make that claim and then have somebody call me out on it. <laughs> great, great. Yeah, go yeah. for it. Tell us more. Yeah, so the curriculum, the way Ken taught, uh, we started with change, practices meditating on change. And I love these practices. I think I find them to be very profound, very, very deep. And so the way they unfold is that the practitioner starts with noticing uh, change in the universe, like the, 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 how the planets are always rotating and how there's always space debris floating around and, and new planets are being born and solar systems are dying. And so all of this change is happening as far as you can imagine, like literally physically as far. And that's usually done in a visualization the student is, is invited to visualize uh, all of this change that's happening in the universe. And then the, the student, uh, this is how I did it as well, and how I teach it now, uh, is to bring awareness then to planet Earth and recognizing all of the change that's happened on this beautiful planet that we inhabit from its inception, from the Big Bang until now. And that's, you know, a lot of change you know, from the, you know, billions of years. And so one would meditate on that for a little while and then uh, meditating on all of the change in world history since since history started being kept. So all of the change in human culture and human society uh, and so forth and animals too, how, how animals have changed, how, how we evolved from single cell amoebas into the human species and, and animal species and so forth. Uh, then we continue 
bringing it to like modern day changes in human culture, how music changes and how fads change and how technology is changing so fast these days and things like that, how languages change, culture is changing and so forth. Uh, and then we uh, bring it closer still to our own uh, family unit and how our family may have been changing, how, you know, children, maybe, you know, maybe a niece or a nephew has been born recently or somebody passed away recently and things like that. And then bringing it closer still to our own physical body and meditating on change in the physical body and how uh, generally how that's done is going back in five-year increments. So starting with the physical body that I have today and noticing in the meditation how today's body is different than it was five years ago and then 10 years ago, and then 15 years ago, and then 20 years ago, and so forth like that. And it continues, and this can be done, that's generally the end of the first meditation on change, as we end with our own body. And a student might do that for maybe two or three months. And then the next chapter is meditating on change in our belief systems in our internal experience, our values, our beliefs, our ideas, our memories. And again, going back in five-year increments. So starting with how we are, how we, what we believe, what we value, what we hold to be true today versus five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, and so forth like that. And the meditation Quite interestingly, uh, every five or seven minutes or so, we circle back around and repeat the phrase, everything changes, nothing stays the same. And that that's a kind of a signature of Tibetan practice, to have these what's known as key phrases. Because then the key phrase becomes something like a mantra. So when I wasn't meditating... I would walk around just everything changes, nothing stays the same. That would be running in, in the inner dialogue in my mind. So, so it would keep bringing up that feeling of how everything's impermanent and changing. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I guess that could be scary for some people. It, it's funny because I ran an online retreat on just these practices and most everyone dropped out of the retreat. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's an intense practice. And that was my fault. It wasn't the participants' fault. You know, I just, I didn't realize how, because I never found them to be scary. I actually found them. Yeah. There's something relaxing about it to me. Uh, yeah. But I could see how it might be yeah. fearful for others. Yeah, it was, it was. And it was a really good learning moment for me when, when, when people started to drop out of the retreats and I was like, Oh wow. Yeah. Because Ken actually says that in his book, he says, you know, fear is a natural component of this practice. For me, fear never came up. I found it like really liberating actually. Uh, and, and I, I really embrace the, the practices around change. I found them to be quite, uh, uh, helpful and meaningful, but yes, now I, now having gone back and, and offered a course, I've offered a couple of courses on it now and, and having in, in really uh, encountered that fear in other people. Now I can really see, okay, this is a thing and, and, um, incorporating the, incorporating that into the way I teach those practices has become quite important. Yeah. 
So yes, it can be very unsettling, you know, because we look out at the world and we see we see a tree and it looks exactly the same. It looks like the tree we saw last week. The tree we saw last year looks roughly the same. And then, you know, five years ago, it's the same tree. It's that same tree in the front yard. Right. But but that's the 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 mask of language. Right. Again, because we we put it into the concept of tree and that word doesn't change. The concept tree doesn't change. And so because as human beings, we're so conceptually oriented right? We label and map out our world with words all the time. And because the words don't change and the concepts don't change, we lose track of how the impermanence is running underneath those concepts all the time. Right, right. And I suppose the biggest um, difficulty could be um, coming to realize that our own subjective sense of self changes like who Clint, you know, like who I might think of as Clint is not permanent. It's changed from where I am now to from where I was, uh, at two years old or 25 years old you know and it's it's changed yeah you know and that can be a little scary because we want to think of ourselves as having this solid sense of self here Mm -hmm. in the west yes oh absolutely well i think that's a, a worldwide uh phenomenon that we have this um illusion of being a solid fixed and permanent uh being looking out at a solid fixed permanent world and that was right. the, yeah, one of the primary teachings of the Buddha was that that's an illusion. That, right. Yeah. And uh, this practice, this meditation that I was just outlining is really, really helpful at seeing that illusion. Now, just because we see it and we recognize it, 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 it informs the way I move through the world. But it doesn't make the world dissolve and we don't dissolve into this. We don't turn into this like, you know selfless pudding right we're, we're still you know very much able to operate functionally in the world um but but what it does do is it informs at least for me personally it, it has deeply informed how i relate to my experience because i know that when things are painful that's going to change and when things are pleasant that is also going to change and so I don't have to stress out so much about the painful experiences. I don't really need to, uh, you know, move into reaction around pushing that away. You know, I can, I can skillfully move away from what's painful, but I don't move into a panic about it. I don't, I don't uh, move into a knee-jerk reaction around the pain. Likewise, when things are pleasant, I don't need to cling to it. Because I know that it's going to change. Clinging to it's not going to help anything. And, you know, when I cling to something that's pleasant, it makes it less pleasant because there's this desperation to it. There's this energy of, I want this. You know, I want this to stay. And that, you know, takes away a a great part of the pleasantness. The pleasure uh, starts to dissolve in that clinginess. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's, it's, yeah, yeah, these could be, these could be challenging things, but 
it kind of returns us to the center, to the middle. Yeah. Well, that's why Ken starts with these practices. And it actually, it doesn't stop there. <laughs> that, that was just the first few months of our time together. It's about six months of into training with that. And then we went into death and dying, which is a kind of an extension of the change practices where we apply that uh, very deeply to our own physical being and, and really practice dying. And I spent about a year and a half practicing my own death over and over again in different ways, um, which is, is very, very deep. And that, I, that can be scary. <laughs> and it, it's intentional. It's meant to bring up that fear. And it's natural because the human nervous system wants to survive. And so yeah, to... and you could almost, you know, if you're visualizing yourself as a corpse or whatnot, mm -hmm. you could almost like have the superstition, well, if I start thinking of myself this way, I'm actually going to die. Yeah, I could, see, <laughs> yeah, I could see how some, some belief systems might fall into that, that kind of magical thinking around that. Right, right, right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the, 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 that's how, it wasn't Ken, but a teacher that I studied with much later, um, Bhikkhu Analio. Um, I did some death and dying practice with him. It was from a different tradition, from the Theravada tradition of Buddhism. Um, and he brought that up. He was like, yeah, the fear is the fear will tell you that you're doing the practice right. Because above, oh, everything, else, yeah, above everything else, the human nervous system wants to stay alive. Right. And so if you're really deeply visualizing your own death, that fear is it's supposed to be there. That's why we move out of the way of a of an oncoming truck. <laughs> it's that same, you know, instinctual drive to stay alive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I found that to be actually very, very helpful because that helps me to turn into the fear rather than to, to just, Ken teaches it, and I, I love this too, I love the way Ken teaches it, he teaches us to hold the fear in the open space of awareness, recognizing that, because we had already done the practices on change, that that fear will eventually change, that we don't need to, to do anything with it. And, right. And that's helpful. I, I found that to be very helpful too. But I found Bhikkhu and Alio's advice that, oh, the fear is actually a good thing. That's a sign that you're doing it right. That put a whole different thing on it for me. And, and I really like that. Yeah, yeah, that does. That does. I think and with anybody going through that material, that's a good kind of uh, framing that can be a boost. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, very often I think when when fear comes up in meditation, whether it's on death and dying or, or any meditation, fear can can come up, and I think a lot of students feel that they're doing it wrong, right? If they're having unpleasant feelings in meditation, wait, I'm meditating, I'm supposed to be resting or relaxing or whatever, you know, and that can be you know unsettling when uh, you know um, uncomfortable feelings come up in a practice um, because it's so against the stereotype. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. And there's also like, you know, you talked about the nervous system's um, will to survive. There's also, I think, a kind of will to feel good mm. and not bad, you know, sure. and if you feel bad, that just sucks and you want to change <laughs> it and feel good again. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, and again, I think that's the wisdom of this curriculum to start with those practices on change. 
because then we mm-hmm. recognize that okay yeah this doesn't feel good right now but it's going to change soon so there you go yeah. yeah yeah great yeah so then we we did it took me about two and a half years to get through those first two chapters and then after that things start to move a little bit quicker not that slower or quicker is any better or worse but but um i did find that i i I had kind of a block against the death and dying practices. My cat's playing with my meditation boy. You can probably hear that. <laughs> um, she's like, ring the bell. It's time to meditate. No, I don't know. <laughs> um, so then after the death and dying practices, I we moved into practices on karma, which also very, very deep uh, and meaningful practices on uh, how our to be very, very, very sensitive and responsible with our actions, our words, and our thoughts, and how that affects not only uh, what we experience in the future, but what, you know, many, it affects what many other people might experience because of the ripple effect. Uh, We send this uh, ripple out into the world uh, with each thought, with, with each action, with each movement forward. Uh, and so to become very, very sensitized to that. So we, we worked with that in the Tibetan framework, which is known as the six realms of existence. And this I've only ever seen in Tibetan Buddhism. It might, it might exist in other forms of Buddhism, but I think for me, this is when I think of Tibetan Buddhism, I think of the six realms of existence. This is really, um, I think fundamental to that school. And I'll just talk through it really, really briefly. I mean, a whole, you know, uh, months and months and months could be spent on these practices. So it will be a brief kind of bus tour. But um, we have the 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 um, hell realm, the animal realm, the human realm. Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot one. The hell realm, the the hungry ghost realm. That's the one I forgot then the animal realm, then the human realm, uh, then the Titan realm and the God realm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, some people think that those are actual physical places that when you die, you're reborn into one of these realms as according to how well or poorly you lived your life. I'm not going to get into the whole belief system around that. I personally don't buy into that. And that's not how Ken taught it either. Uh, But it's the way I was taught. It is a psychological blueprint. There you go. That, that, that makes the most sense to me too. Yeah. And well, it's, it certainly makes it a lot more accessible and uh, uh, it gives us reason to practice it now. Right. Rather than worrying about it uh, in the last, days of our life or something like that but right you know this right. makes it a, a, a salient to the present moment right and so sometimes when i teach the six realms I, I i kind of give an example of you know you can you know kind of map out how you go through all six realms within like 12 hours of the day like for example i might wake up in the morning and maybe i have uh, some online students scheduled and things like that. And I, I get out of bed, I do my meditation practice, I go to the computer and check my email and all my students have canceled for the day. <laughs> so now I'm angry, right? Because I have all I had planned my whole day around these students and they've all canceled. And so I feel anger and 
anger is the quality of the hell realm. Yes, yes. So now I'm in the hell now realm. is it is it your understanding that the hell realm is located in the feet, or do you not associate it with a body part? I don't associate it with a body part, but I think that's very interesting. Um, but that's oh, okay, yeah, because I've seen these realms kind of mentioned in according oh. to body, the body and chakras and stuff. Yeah. yeah, I don't doubt that, I, and I think there's a lot to that. I think you know, back when the Buddha was teaching, and in the traditions that that came later, very little was written down, and so. To students and teachers would use body parts as a way of remembering mm-hmm. the teachings, you know, and so very likely that I think, um, you know, the okay, so the hell realm we associate hell with going down, you know, let's you know, can associate that with my feet, yeah, sure, that totally makes sense. Um, just a thought. So, going back to the example there, so now, um I check my email. I'm angry. I'm, I'm upset. That's the anger is indicative of the hell realm. And when you're in the hell realm, it's it, we kind of have the look that, or we look out into the world rather as if everything's opposing us. We're opposed to everything. We have no friends in the hell realm. Right? So that's another kind of sign. So that, that, you know, maybe people who, who gravitate towards frustration or anger or um, just feeling like uh, they can't get a break, that kind of thing, that's also indicative of the hell realm. So then let's say I close my computer. Now I'm fuming mad. I go downstairs. I'm in the kitchen. I'm looking for some food. And I, you know, I know I'm hungry and I know I like some of the food there, but I can't seem to find anything that will satisfy my hunger. Now I'm in the hungry ghost realm. So I've moved from the hell realm to the hungry ghost realm. And that can happen in just a minute or two, right? So now I'm inhabiting the hungry ghost realm. I'm looking at all this food. I can't find anything. And then I know I like bananas. I don't really feel like a banana, but I might feel like a banana. I don't really know. But So I grab the banana because I know I like bananas. And I go back upstairs and I start peeling my banana. And I eat it. And now I'm in the animal realm. Because the animal animal realm is, uh, the signature of the animal realm is surviving by instinct. You're not making any conscious decisions. You're just going with whatever you went with before in the past, because that's what feels right in the present moment. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's the signature of the animal realm, is just surviving on instinct, letting instinct drive our decisions, basically. So I have my banana. That's all good. And now I'm fed. I'm nourished. I, uh, let's see, I'm on my way up to the gym, let's say. And, you know, the human realm, now I'm entering into the human realm. The human realm is, uh, the signature of the human realm is desire. And so I desire, like, I'm on my way to the gym. Maybe I'm thinking about uh, my partner and I'm thinking about how I want to look better for them. And, you know, this is all, you know, inspiring my workout. And so now I'm in the human realm. Okay. Right. Yeah. And we Great all know the example. Human, more or less because that we're all human beings listening to this podcast. Right. So we, we, we can all really maybe hope maybe <laughs> we can all relate to that. Yeah. I guess it's debatable, but we can, <laughs> we can all relate to that. And then, so I get to the gym, right. 
and I pick up the the weights and but I see a person next to me who's lifting you know 20 pounds heavier than me and I look at that person and I say I, I should be able to lift at least as heavy as that person can and so I pick up the 30 pound weights and now I'm really straining and this is the Titan realm the Titan realm is well the signature of the Titan realm is competition the competitiveness always needing to prove oneself always needing to get ahead always you know going to war with those around them to 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 prove oneself yeah that, that almost that almost sounds like it's got similarities with hell you're very that's very accurate because and that's very often when somebody's inhabiting a titan realm then they lose the war and they end up in hell Oh, I see. I yeah. gotcha. And that, oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. 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 That's very common. Oh, it's, it's great. You mentioned that. So then, so I'm, you know, now I've really pulled all my muscles <laughs> from being in the Titan realm and I'm, you know, uh, I go, uh, back down to my room and I shower and I get changed. I have my protein shake and I'm laying on the bed and I'm thinking, what a wonderful life that I live that I get to teach meditation to people all day and talk about meditation and mindfulness and Buddhism. And I have a beautiful cat and I love my life. And now I'm in the God realm. Ah, gotcha. The gotcha. The God realm signature is really uh, thinking that we're right. And everyone else is not as right as we are. We've done everything right as, as much as possible. And we're inhabiting, the most luxurious, beautiful life possible. And the problem with the God realm, the suffering that is entailed in that, because it sounds amazing, right? The suffering that's in the God realm is we lose touch with our other human beings. We're no longer able to have compassion for suffering because we've done it all right. We've done everything perfectly well. We've got the great job. We've got the great life. We've got the great retirement. And everyone else's suckers because they didn't do it quite as well as we did. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people in America think like that. <laughs> still, I've, I've, I've ran into God, people who inhabit the God realm all over the world. And we, we all <laughs> it's a tendency we all have. You know, that's the yeah, thing. yeah. It's a blueprint yeah. that, that all human beings carry with them. And the importance of that map of the six realms is to simply notice where we are in any given moment. Because then, then we're, we're, we step out of the whole realm completely and we're in the present moment. We're not in any realm at that point. And that's the idea is to stay off of the wheel of samsara, off of the wheel of suffering. Gotcha. So the six hell realms, I mean, I'm, I'm, see here, I'm focusing on hell. The six realms are basically, um, you know, the wheel of uh -huh. samsara yep. and all, all of them are impermanent. Yes. All of them are impermanent and they all have an inherent type of suffering within them. Right. Yeah. Right. And so when mm -hmm. we can when we can apply mindfulness to where we are in that map, we step out of the suffering. Yeah. 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 That's the idea. Yeah. And so that's you know I think there we're about halfway through the the Tibetan curriculum, at least the way Ken taught it. Um, yeah. And I guess that would took took me to about three years to get three, three and a half years 
of training to move through all those practices. Understandable. Absolutely. Very, yeah. Very rich. Especially to do it thoroughly. Yeah. Yeah. Very yeah. rich. Yeah. That was one of Ken's thing is I remember him saying, uh, we don't do these practices just to do them. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But you know, the, the important thing is to do them so that we feel them. Right. And to really get to know them in the body and, and to really feel the wisdom uh, of the practice. Yeah. Yeah. That's quite important. Yeah. Do you want, shall I continue? Uh, I can, I, there's a little more uh, of the curriculum that we covered. Um, yeah. It said like you were saying there's three parts more of the curriculum. Yeah. Well, we went into from there, if I remember correctly, and this was quite some, some time ago. So, but I think I'm remembering it right now. Uh, from there, we went into the Brahma Viharas, the, the four immeasurables which are loving kindness, uh, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. And practicing all of those. Yeah. And so we spent three months on each. We spent three months on loving kindness, three months on compassion, three months on joy, three months on equanimity. Although with Ken, we started with equanimity. That makes sense to me, yeah. It, it varies from school to school. Even in the Tibetan tradition, uh, some schools start with loving kindness. Uh, the early schools of Buddhism almost always start, start with loving kindness. Um, but some Dzogchen schools do start with equanimity, and so that's where we started, where, where I started when I was practicing with Ken, yeah. And it, it's so because then we can apply that non-judgment uh, to the other qualities, right? Equanimity is the practice of being non-judgmental. And so then when we move into loving kindness, for example, we can more easily extend loving kindness to people who we may not like very much, right? Right, right, right. So it, it's laid out, the curriculum's laid out in that way to circumvent the, the, uh, the, um, the resistances we might have towards some of the other practices. And for the four immeasurables, you used the word Brahma something? Yeah, Brahma Vihara. That's the Sanskrit term for these practices. And okay, gotcha. Yeah, it means the home of the gods or the dwelling of the gods. Uh, Brahma is was the Hindu god, uh, literally the Hindu god of creation. Right. And Vihara means home or dwelling place. Mm -hmm. And that, that it comes from, there's kind of a famous story in one of the early Buddhist texts where uh, a Brahmin, a follower, well, Brahmanism is now Hinduism. Uh, so this Brahmin comes to the Buddha and he's talking to the Buddha about loving kindness. And the Buddha is trying to really emphasize why these practices are so important. And he says, these practices are the Brahma Vihara. These are the where the gods dwell is in loving kindness and compassion and equanimity and joy. And I, when I, and I'm actually, you know, kind of a sidebar here, I'm actually offering an online course on joy uh, starting the first week of April in, in about a week and a half from now. Actually, a week from tomorrow we start. Great. And uh, they go to your website to get that information. Yeah. Yeah. Such sweet thunder.org. 
Perfect. And so loving kindness is different from compassion. They're two separate ones. They're two. Yeah. They're two very distinct, uh, different practices. Uh, That's a very common question of really a fundamental question. Um, so loving kindness is the wish that all beings be happy. And compassion is the wish that all beings be free from suffering. Oh, interesting distinction, because being free from suffering makes you happy. (laughs) One would think so. so. And yeah, they do lean on each other very much so. But if you want to get a a, a really, uh, I think, an accurate felt experience of the difference, as you walk around through your day, you could, you know, see you see other people. You could say, may you be happy. Not out loud, or if you want to say it out loud, you can. But I, I do it in my own mind, my own to, quietly to myself. I say, may you be happy. That's loving kindness. And if you're listening to this, you can just do it right now as you're listening. May You can say it to yourself, may I be happy. There's nobody else around. May I be happy. Just say it a few times. And then say, may I be free from suffering. Mm-hmm. Right, there's a much different felt experience there. So may I be happy? May I be happy? And I, I almost want to smile when I offer that. And sometimes I put my hand over my heart and I say, "May I be happy? May I be mm-hmm. happy?" And then I change hands. So if I started with the right hand, I'd change to my left hand and say, "May I be free from suffering? May I be free from suffering?" And the for me, the quality is very, very different. It's almost a softer. I almost have a tear coming to my eye when I say, may I be free from suffering. That's, right, yeah. right. It's almost uh, weightier a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah very much. Yeah, so because it, yeah got, got more bulk to it. Yeah, because compassion acknowledges the existence of struggle. Right. We all, all human beings struggle. Right. And so compassion is really an acknowledgement of that, whereas loving kindness, it it doesn't presuppose the existence of suffering or struggle. Okay, And then the other two, what would be the phrases for those? Joy. um, May I enjoy the activities of life itself? Ah, interesting. <laughs> yeah, well said. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Ah, yeah, it, it does feel that way. May I enjoy the <laughs> yeah. activities of life itself? It's this, ah, yeah, and it's, it. joy is really the support for compassion. Right, the, right. The deeper we can move into a quality of joy, the more space we have to hold the suffering of ourselves and others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so those are related in that way. And then for equanimity, uh, may I be free. Wait, may I be free from preference and prejudice? There you go. Yeah, free from preference and prejudice. Yeah, and so one can move through all four of those in in you know five or ten minutes if you just do the first phrase you know, offering it to your own heart or or to other people. And you can really get a a feel for how they they are similar and different at the same time. Yeah. 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 Mm. 
Fantastic. Yeah, I think you just gave the listeners just a gem right now. Oh, good. <laughs> it has been for me, and, and the Brahma Viharas has been a mainstay in my practice. Pardon me, in my practice. I still cycle through um, each one three months at a time for year in, year out. I've been doing that since 2004, since Ken introduced them to me. I guess it was about 2006 or seven at that time when I was introduced to the Brahma Viharas. And I remember when Ken was outlining the practice, he said, yeah, we'll spend three months on each. And I said kind of, you know, plaintively, uh, Ken, that's a year's worth of practice. <laughs> and he said, mm-hmm. oh, that'll get you started anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I really realized, I, I recognize the wisdom of that comment now. It's those practices keep going and going and going. They go deeper and deeper. Uh, year in and year out, uh, I keep uh, gleaning wisdom from those practices. Yeah. yeah. So, so may I enjoy the activities of life? Yeah. That's that's joy, loving kindness. May I be happy. May others be happy. Yeah. Compassion. May I be free from suffering. May others be free from suffering. Mm. And then equanimity, may I be free from preference and prejudice. May others be free from preference yeah. and prejudice. Yeah. yeah. And there, so. there are other phrases, too. That There's usually, well, in loving kindness, there's seven phrases. In compassion, there's five. And then in joy and equanimity is four each. Sometimes there's I use five phrases in the joy. So it is a, a much deeper practice. But for here, for you know, just to give the listeners a taste of um, the quality of each of those, a great way to do that is just to run through the first phrase of each like that and to really feel into that. Um, Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So if I may, I'll just, I know we're we're running, I'm kind of weary of the time here and I just want to close out the the curriculum that we covered. Um, Sure. So we, we went from there to a practice called Tonglen, uh, sure, yeah. Many Westerners now are familiar with Tonglen, where you, we practice breathing in the suffering and the struggle of others and sending out joy and laughter and everything that's good in our life, we offer that to other beings. Breathing Or sending out things. compassion, right? Not, I mean, it can be compassion, but it's really anything that, that feels good for us, anything that's nourishing, anything that's... Oh, good. okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're offering that as a gift of compassion to other people to alleviate their suffering. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It is a practice and many teachers use that as a practice of compassion. The way Ken taught it was a practice of breaking down the cherishment of self because it goes against our normal tendency to protect ourselves. Right. right? So right. We're, we're breathing in the suffering of someone else and we're sending them everything that's comfortable in our life. It's exactly the opposite of how we're wired, really. But it it it, it works to to break down our ego clinging in that way. And uh, I, when I first came to that, all of that fear from death and dying came up again. And Ken was so great; he was like, "Yeah, that's gonna change. Just stay with it. Just hold it. It's natural to feel that fear." And eventually it does dissolve. At least that was my experience. And it becomes this really beautiful experience of oneness. Uh, We start to recognize that the whole human race 
is really wanting the same thing. We're, we're all really wanting to be free from suffering and to be happy. Uh, and we really, if through Tonglen, I really started to feel that in a very, very visceral, embodied way. And then the the last uh, chapter, if you will, of the the curriculum was insight meditation, where again, similar to Tonglen and to the death and dying practices, we uh, bring awareness to this experience of being a, a solid fixed eye, and we start to recognize that that is an illusion through through a, a particular type of meditation practice where we're resting in the present moment uh, just like that bare attention practice that i talked about at the beginning of our time together but then we bring up into that re- resting in the present moment we bring in questions like who's having this experience or who am i we bring in these questions and then I'll, I'll just talk with the first one that I brought up there, who's having this experience, because I think this is a really great example. So if I ask myself in meditation, who's having this experience, immediately the mind starts to try to answer that. Well, I'm having this experience, of course. It's me, it's Chris. That's all more experience. Who's having that experience? So we keep coming back to that question. And then we think, well, I, I don't know. Well, well, who's asking? I don't know. Right. And so anytime the mind or nervous system settles on an answer, we ask who's answering the question, who's having that experience. We keep coming back to the question. And so if your answer was, there's no one here, then who's, who's answering? There's no one here. Who's looking, right. who's looking at the no one. Right, 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 right. Yeah. So, the, and so what the practitioner starts to realize is that the question is more important than the answer. And we start to, to mm-hmm. kind of move into this experience of wonder that we don't know. It's this experience of this ever-changing, wondrous experience of being alive. Right. Good answer. That's a good answer. But that even that's not an question. answer. <laughs> right, right. Because you could say, who's who's coming up who, with that? Exactly. Right, right, exactly. right. So the, the idea is we never, the, the question, the practice is to never settle on any one thing. Because as soon as we start to settle on it, it becomes a belief system. It becomes, a, right. and that closes us down to the mystery of life. Right. Excellent stuff. Yeah, yeah. And so that that's in a nutshell. In an hour, I covered about seven years of practice. So uh, that was my um, Tibetan training. Mostly, I've co- I have come back to, to a different a teacher now, Mingo Rinpoche, who I've been studying on and off with for about three or four years now. Mostly online, but I've had a little bit of interaction uh, with uh, some of his uh, senior teachers. Um, uh, so I've done some stu- more studying in Tibetan, but uh, that's the the real Tibetan training that I've had. I think I, well, like I said, I, I think of Ken McLeod as my still my primary teacher, my senior teacher. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic. Yeah, well, we have covered a lot of great stuff, yeah. and of course, my thinking is I want to have you back on the podcast soon again. I would love to come back. Yeah, it's always a joy. It's always really a pleasure to to, to talk. Yeah. yeah, great, great. Yeah. Well, well, take care. I'm gonna I'm gonna.
close out here the recording, but you can stay on. But uh, right. yeah, take care and thanks so much for being a part of Contemplative Flight. Mm, thank you, Clint. Thank you.